Hey folks, it's Mike Wall, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Today, we're talking about the third episode of Star Trek Discovery's fourth season, Choose to Live. This episode follows three different storylines, so I'm going to split my think, feel, and question segments amongst them. As always, if you haven't seen the episode yet, we're about to dive into spoiler territory, so consider yourself warned. Think. My Think segment will come from Stamets and Book's trip to Navarre to consult with the Navarre Science Council about the nature of the gravitational anomaly, which they now call the Dark Matter Anomaly, or DMA, because it has a lot of dark matter in its accretion disk. But I'm not going to concentrate on dark matter for this segment, or manifolds, or tensors, or anything to do with Stamets' latest hypothesis of the anomaly being a primordial wormhole. Instead, I'm going to talk about Book and his memories. You see, Book witnessed the DMA destroy Quajon. So in order to search for proof of what the DMA is, Book enters a mind meld with Navarre's president, Tarina, to relive and re-examine those horrific moments. They're looking to see if Book has any memories of the blue glow of Cherenkov radiation associated with tachyons from the primordial wormhole slamming into Quajon's atmosphere. It's one of those things that Stamets' hypothesis predicts, but honestly, all of that is unimportant. I'm not focusing on tachyons or Cherenkov radiation in this think segment. What really caught my attention was this interaction, after Tarina concludes there's no evidence of tachyons, but Book wants to keep reliving the last joyful moments that he shared with his family. I have what I need. No, wait. There's something else I need to see. Look at them. It's like they're still here. You understand. You cannot alter the memory. You can only relive it. You cannot alter the memory, Tarina says. Unfortunately, I don't think that's true. You see, all memories, especially traumatic ones, are prone to distortion over time. There have been numerous studies describing how memories of traumatic events are quite fluid. Generally, the experiments look like this. Right after a traumatic event, be it the Challenger space shuttle explosion or the September 11th terrorist attacks, researchers will go out and ask people to write down all the details of where they were, who they were with, and what they were feeling at the time of the event. Then, 
a year later, they'll ask the same questions of those very same people. And a couple of years later, again, the same questions. And the weird thing is, in the subsequent surveys, people reported different details, with the details moving farther and farther away from their initial survey answers as time elapses. And it's not a small deviation. A year after 9-11, just one year later, when witnesses told the scientists where they remembered being and who they remembered being with, etc., they were only consistent with their initial answers that they recorded just after 9-11, 63% of the time. 63%, despite having high confidence that what they were saying was true. So, we're often very confident about our memories of the past when actually, studies show, that we probably shouldn't be. So why is this? It's because the human brain is a very different kind of machine from a computer or a camera or a notebook. When we write a file to a hard drive, or when we scribble a reminder on a sticky note, we are encoding information onto something physical that doesn't change when it's read. There is a separation between hardware and software. The hardware stores the memories. The software accesses them. Not so with the brain. The brain doesn't have this clean distinction between hardware and software. It's just wetware. Furthermore, the brain is a dynamic place, always changing, like the river you can never step in twice. Memories are stored via the links between neurons, but it's also these neural links that are firing when you recall things. Therefore, the very act of remembering something can change the strengths or the architecture of your synaptic connections. How weird would it be if every time you opened up a JPEG on your computer, the image changed? Well, that's what happens in our brains. Every remembering is an act of memory-making. In a research paper called Memory Distortion for Traumatic Events, The Role of Mental Imagery, the authors Darren Strange and Melanie Takarangi write, quote, After a traumatic experience, intentional remembering, or effortful retrieval, and unintentional remembering, or intrusive mental imagery, can introduce new details that over time assimilate into a person's memory of the event. End quote. Additionally, neuroscientist Dr. Donna Bridge says, quote, Memories aren't static. If you remember something in the context of a new environment and time, or if you are even in a different mood, your memories might integrate the new information. End quote. I've put links to my references in the show notes for anyone who'd like to check them out. So let's bring this discussion back to Star Trek. In his mind meld, 
Book is able to recall his nephew Leto looking back at him before Quajon's untimely demise. That's it. I had turned to my brother, but Leto looked back at me. That's what I missed. He saw me, and he knew I loved him. And this simple realization brings Book an enormous amount of relief, helping him to recover from losing his planet and his loved ones. But did it really happen? Did Leto actually turn around? We will never know. It may very well be a new detail that Book had assimilated as he recalled this traumatic day over and over and over and over again, as we saw him doing in episode two. So I prefer to think of this memory of Leto turning around and showing him love as something that Book incorporated into his memory because of the love and dedication that he is currently receiving from the Discovery crew during these trying times. In particular, from Stamets, who reached out to Book in his own unique way, who brought Book all the way to Navarre to partake in a highly mathematical conference that Book, honestly, had no reason to be at, and who promised to solve the mystery of the DMA for him. So in the end, maybe it doesn't matter if Leto really swiveled around or not. Maybe memory distortion is a feature rather than a bug of our brains, which have evolved to allow us to experience and survive and move on from tremendous amounts of trauma so that we can continue to live our lives and make a difference in this world, as I'm sure Book will do in the remainder of Season 4. Feel. Another plot in the episode Choose to Live features Tilly jumping outside of her comfort zone to try to find herself again. I am trying new things because my comfort zone has become uncomfortable. Or too comfortable. Unclear. Anyway, Dr. Colbert thought it might help if I shake things up a little. So last night I slept with my pillow at the other end of my bed and then I took the long way to the bridge this morning and I was hoping I could uh, try out a little gardening by watering some of your plants. She tastes mac and cheese, despite hating cheese. She decides to take up kelpian gardening, despite not knowing the first thing about swamp kelp bloom. And she goes on a dangerous away mission, despite not having much tactical experience at all. Now, I'd be pretty surprised if Tilly decided to switch careers to become a champion cheese eater, 
a horticulturist, or even a security officer. But I totally love that she's trying these seemingly random activities. Because it reminds me of when I stepped out of my comfort zone in grad school to participate in a Star Trek musical called Boldly Go, which the Caltech Theater Department put on in 2016. Listen up, everybody, to their stations. Affirmative, Captain. Check your plot our route. Hi, Captain. Rodding Wexter for orbital exit. Hey, Scotty, got that. Now, I had zero experience doing theater and negative experience doing musical theater. But the moment I saw those Star Trek flyers in the hallways, I knew I was auditioning. And against all odds, I landed the role of Sulu. Now, dipping into the theater world didn't turn me into an actor. I never did another musical production again. I mean, none of them were about Star Trek, so why would I? But you know who I met on that stage? A nerdy Caltech undergraduate named Elise Cutts, my former co-host on this here podcast. Even though Doing Boldly Go didn't launch my Broadway career, it did, in a way, precipitate my podcasting journey, which is a huge part of my life right now. If I never stepped outside of my comfort zone, if I never did that show, I might not have had the courage to start this podcast with Elise, and I might not be here talking to you right now. So it warms my heart to see Tilly reach outside her comfort zone, and I can't wait to see what or who she finds. Question. The last plotline of this episode surrounds Gray's incorporation, the transfer of his consciousness from the Tal symbiont inside Adira to a brand new organic synth body. The actors and producers of Discovery have spoken about how this scene is symbolic of the trans experience, going from being seen by almost no one to finally being seen by everyone, which I just love and applaud. It was a difficult process, the incorporation. Gray was in limbo for quite some time. But in the end, the operation was a success. He now has a new, physical body. So here's my question for this week. What will Gray do? now that he's corporeal. His ambitions are to become a guardian, but that would seem to require returning to Trill and 
separation from Adira? Can they bear to be apart after spending so much time literally as one? Or is Grey going to take up a role on the ship, or just cruise around the galaxy with Discovery as a civilian? What do you think? You can send me your thoughts on Twitter. I'm at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I. I'd really love to hear from you. And with that, we're done for this week. Take care, everyone. I hope you enjoy Episode 4 of Season 4. And until then, I'll see you out there. Seeking out into